Welcome to the Acton Institute podcast. Glad to have you along today. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and I am pleased to be joined in the Acton Studios today by a friend of the Institute. Uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine is here with me today. He is the uh, professor of history and the chair of the history department at the Central Connecticut State University. He's a faculty member at the uh, Centurions Program at Breakpoint, the Worldview Training Ministry of Prison Fellowship, and most importantly for our purposes, he is a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. He's also I guess we can call you a newly published author again. Uh, his latest book, just released by Zondervan, entitled Why You Think the Way You Do, The Story of Western Worldviews from Rome to Home. And uh, Dr. Sunshine, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Well, let's dive right in. And uh, this topic of worldview uh, is something that I think about a lot, especially as a parent of young children, trying to raise them uh, with an appropriate, uh, in, in my case, Christian worldview. Uh, it's something I think about a lot, but I think a lot of people... Uh, don't even realize that they have a worldview, or if they do realize it, they don't think about it that much. Can you uh, start with a very basic explanation here? What exactly is worldview, and why is it important? Your worldview is what you think about the world and your place in it. The way I like to describe it, it's what you think of as common sense about the world. There are a lot of different ways of analyzing worldviews. The one that I use is I focus on philosophical questions like, what is the nature of reality? Uh, how do we know things? Uh, is there good and evil, and how do we know what they are? And then along with that, some higher-order questions about the meaning and purpose of life. Where do human beings come from? Uh, what's wrong with the world? What's the solution? What's our purpose in life? Those kinds of things. Now, everybody has a worldview. Most people never think about it. Um, and as a matter of fact, that's really one of the key things about worldviews. They're usually transparent to us. We don't see them. But, in fact, everything we see in the world is filtered through the worldview. Uh, you can think about it like a pair of glasses. Um, I wear glasses, and I use them to bring the world into visual focus. Your worldview brings the world into mental focus. It's the, the framework you use for interpreting everything around you. And if you want to understand why you think the way you do, if you want to understand the way other people think. If you want to understand your culture, it's really important to understand the worldview assumptions that lie behind all, all of the things you think, other people think, and the way your culture thinks. Well, let's go to one of those points where the rubber hits the road um, and take it from the theoretical to the real. In your book, uh, the subtitle obviously refers to Rome. We start in the Roman Empire. And you talk about the worldview, the philosophical underpinnings of Roman life how they viewed the world, how they viewed human life and the individual person. There were some good things and some bad things about Rome, and you actually make the argument that one of the main causes of the fall of the Roman Empire was their worldview. Talk a little bit about Rome and how they viewed the world. Probably the best way of understanding the Roman worldview is to look at uh, Plato and the way Plato saw the world, because I would argue Plato wasn't only a philosopher. He is the one who best articulated what the common worldview of his era was and the era that led into the Roman Empire. Now, Plato believed that everything originated um, in the realm of ideas, thoughts. Uh, the non-physical world was the ground of reality. Uh, the physical world existed, but it existed as shadows that were cast by the world of ideas. And what this does is it creates a hierarchy of being where you have God as the origin of all things who is pure idea. He casts off shadows, or I should say it casts off shadows because God is impersonal. And uh, these shadows are emanations, cast off other shadows, which cast off other shadows, which cast off other shadows. And at each level, they get progressively less pure, less, uh, less spiritual, more physical. So 
everything literally from God to dirt exists on a continuum called the hierarchy of being. And everything's place in the hierarchy of being is determined by how, well, spiritual it is or how material it is. This gives you a, a gradation of values. The spiritual is more important, more pure than the physical. Now, this applies to the entire world, but it also applies to human beings. There is also a hierarchy, a natural hierarchy within human beings, with the superior being the ones who are more intelligent, more wise, more intellectual, whatever, who are the natural rulers over the people who don't think as well or aren't as intelligent. And what this means is that the people who are superior have an automatic right to rule over the inferior and are more important than the inferior. Just like, well, herbivores can take the life of plants, carnivores take the lives of herbivores, humans can kill either at need, the gods can demand anything they want from us in terms of human sacrifice. The same thing applies to human society, so that the superior people in human society can demand what they want from the inferior. What this means is that slavery is considered a natural institution uh, because there are some people who are just simply intrinsically inferior. Born to be slaves. Born to be slaves. Aristotle described slaves as living tools. Nothing more than that. But by the same token, the people who are superior are going to be the ones who are going to naturally cultivate the life of the spirit, their, their mental life, their study of philosophy, contemplation of the uh, of God, those kinds of things. Now, this means that the elites within the Roman Empire wanted to surround themselves by beauty as a way of stimulating thoughts of the divine. But this also led very quickly to luxury and from luxury into excess and all kinds of depravity, ironically enough, bringing it right back to the physical in terms of uh, gluttony, sexual depravity, and things like that. So that's the core of the Roman Empire. You have on the one hand, these fabulous monuments, uh, these uh, great engineering feats and things like that, that are meant to bring uh, grandeur and to aggrandize really the elites, the emperor and others. And they certainly have. You can go to Rome today and still see these incredible monuments. Right. And that's an expression of the worldview because the people who are superior in the society deserve whatever aggrandizement uh, they get. But at the same time, you have the squalid side of the empire where people who who rebel against the empire or are tortured to death publicly on the roads as a warning to others, where slavery is commonplace, where the average lifespan was only 30 years, about 20 if you're born a slave, uh, where people are living in squalid tenements. Uh, that's also a natural expression of this worldview. Now, the way this ends up working against the Roman Empire itself is that well, let's look at the elites particularly here. Uh, I said they were living lives of luxury because theoretically the contemplation of beauty leads you to a contemplation of the good, leads you to a contemplation of God. But this also very quickly also leads into all kinds of excess. Um, Roman depravity is frankly legendary. And the further up you go in the Roman hierarchy, the more depraved things get. I noticed in the book you mentioned Caligula. Right. Caligula is the only Roman emperor that had a film made of his life by Penthouse. Appropriately Uh, so, too. Right, Mm -hmm. right. So the strange part about this is you have people living lives of complete sexual indulgence, and yet at the same time they have a very antenatal attitude. They want Mm. to indulge in sex, but they don't want to risk childbirth. So the net result is 
As early as the Emperor Augustus, Augustus was concerned that the Roman nobility weren't reproducing. He tried to pass a law, he actually did pass a law, insisting that young noblemen marry and have children. Didn't work. But the concern was there as early as the first emperor. And as time goes on, what you see happening in Rome is because of these antenatal attitudes, it's an oversexed society with antenatal attitudes, Rome ended up actually depopulating itself. It started relying to fill the gap in population on immigration from across the borders, bringing in the Germanic tribes, um, initially in small groups, eventually wholesale. And that is what really leads to the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. The barbarians, the so-called barbarians, weren't really trying to destroy the empire. They were actually trying to get the benefits of the empire, and the empire itself was using them as a way to make up the gap in population that they were experiencing because of this antenatal attitude. Now, this is interesting because there are a couple of things that I hear that there, there are almost echoes of them that, that are still happening today. The first is the continuum from the spiritual to the physical and the disdain of the physical. That's, uh, that's a, a view that was echoed in the, in the ancient Christian heresy of Gnosticism. Right. And we still, to a certain extent, see that today where the work of, say, a, a, a person who goes out and starts a business, perhaps works with the earth, uh, works with their hands, that's sometimes disdained by the elites who are, are more interested in their theoretical pursuits. There's sort of a feeling that, that to, to work is, is sort of dirty and to profit from that work is sort of... Uh, it's, it's tainted somehow. Yeah, tainted, exactly. That's the word yes. I was looking for. Well... That's actually a very good point within the Roman Empire. Again, we, we can't go through all the details of this, but just taking a look at that side of it, in the Roman Empire, production was considered the work of slaves. The elites didn't get involved in things like that. That was, that was for the slaves. Um, it was looked down upon, uh, particularly by the empire. In the early days of Rome, the nobility actually farmed. But as time goes on, that they moved toward plantation agriculture that got pushed further and further away from them and really any kind of productive labor was seen as demeaning you didn't you really didn't want to do that um, and as a result the entire ethos was to live as an elite meant you didn't have to work you had other people inferiors doing that work for you because the superior person doesn't do that sort of thing the other point that you mentioned that I think uh, more and more should be of concern to, to modern folks is the point about the antinatal culture. Uh, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar, may not be familiar with that particular term uh, of natalism or antinatalism, but they'd be more f familiar with an argument about demography. Mark Stein is an author who's done a lot of work in that area. He has a book called America Alone, where he talks about the fact that birth rates, especially in Europe, uh, and also, uh, I think Japan is a good example of this, that birth rates uh, to the native populations are rapidly declining, rapidly declining. We saw that in the Roman Empire, one of the main causes of the fall of the empire, and we're seeing it today in Europe. There's a, there seems to be a connection there. What I find particularly interesting is the parallels between Rome and contemporary attitudes toward sex and childbearing. Um, within the Roman Empire, there were a variety of means of contraception that were available, the most common actually being, let's just call it non-reproductive sexual practices and leave it at that. But there were other kinds of, uh, of herbal and uh, other sorts of contraception available. At the same time, if pregnancy occurred, particularly in the case of an adulterous affair, abortions were quite common. But they were rather crude and frequently either killed or left women infertile afterwards. They were surgical abortions. Mm -hmm. 
and if all else failed, infanticide was perfectly acceptable. The average Roman family kept one healthy girl and all the healthy boys they had, and they simply killed all the rest. The amazing thing about this to me is that in Roman law, the 12 tables of Roman law specifically say that every visibly deformed or handicapped child must be killed. It was seen as a, essentially a eugenics policy. In order for Rome to survive, in order for Rome to prosper, in order for Rome to succeed, those unhealthy children had to be killed. It was a social duty. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tacitus described the the Jews who did not believe in abortion, who did not believe in infanticide because they saw this as murder. Tacitus described this attitude as one of the Jews, quote, sinister and revolting practices. So strange to hear that sort of language uh, from, from a modern sort of Christian mindset, but, but just that was just part of the cultural background of Rome. Right. And at the same time, again, remember, this is a culture that really reveled in sexual excess. The parallels to the contemporary West are, are stunning to me, that we have a culture that is sexually saturated, and yet that accepts contraception, abortion, and increasingly argues for infanticide, particularly for the weak and handicapped, as in the Twelve Tables of Roman Law, this is simply what our culture looks like right now. Exactly. It's happening on both ends of the age spectrum, too. The, right. the elderly, uh, the euthanasia movement is, uh, it, it seems, gaining steam in the West. Yes. You didn't see that so much in Rome simply because the elderly didn't survive anyway. Didn't exist. Right. They didn't have the opportunity to extend it there. Right. Average lifespan, 30 years. Exactly. We're talking with Professor Glenn Sunshine, the author of the new book, why You Think the Way You Do, out from Zondervan, now at your local bookstore. You can also pick it up at the Acton Bookshop, www.acton.org. Just click on the bookshop link. It'll be there for you. Let's move on a little bit uh, down the road here to the medieval period. There's sort of a boilerplate idea about the Middle Ages, uh, the Dark Ages, uh, that uh, that it was a time where, where society, the social development of Europe, was really held back by an overweening influence of the church and religion and superstition. And then along came the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, and boom, there was a, a flowering of culture and invention and technological and economic development. Is that is that an inaccurate summary of, of what actually happened? That is the standard myth about the Middle Ages, and I don't know any historian who has ever studied the period who believes any of it. The fact of the matter is the Middle Ages was an incredibly dynamic period, um, and a lot of that dynamism was driven, really, by the church. Most of the foundations for modern Western civilization, no matter what you look at in terms of our achievements, whether it's in science, whether it's in economics, whether it's in technology, education, concepts of human rights, uh, representative government, all of these things, the foundations are all laid in the Middle Ages, and they're laid there primarily by people in the clergy as they particularly focused on the idea of the image of God and working out the implications of that. Um, Really, every major success that Western civilization has had is built on the work done by medieval theologians. So the fact is that that particular way of viewing the Middle Ages is utter nonsense. Let's talk about a few specific things in the realm of economics uh, specifically. For instance, the, de- the development of, of private property, the ideas behind work in general, whether or not a person was entitled to enjoy the, the fruits of their labor, the, the way that technology was advanced to eliminate toil and drudgery. How, how did those things, how, how did Christianity help to, to spur on those developments? 
all of those come from really Genesis 2, uh, the, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve and their placement in the garden. When you take a look at the Genesis text, I suppose I should include Genesis 1 here as well, what it says is that God created man in his image, male and female. So all human beings are made in the image of God. What we know about God at that point, what is clear at that point about God is that God is a creator. Or to put it differently, God works. Because, well, having a Sabbath day where you rest from your labor doesn't make any sense unless you are in fact laboring. So God worked when he created the universe. Man being made in God's image, man as male and female, being created in God's image means that we were, like him, created to work. And in fact, work is an essential aspect of the image of God and an essential aspect of human dignity. When you look at Genesis 2, God gave Adam and Eve labor in the garden, physical labor for mm -hmm. production, but he also gave them intellectual work and creative work in naming the animals. Uh, naming the animals is itself the foundation for arts and sciences. Uh, naming in Hebrew, the names involve the reflection of the nature of the thing named. That's a, a commonplace element of Hebrew thought. So in order to name an animal, you have to know the animal. You have to study the animal. You have to understand the animal so that when you put the name on it, the name will reflect its nature. So what we have here is the foundation for science, observation, and all of that. We also have creativity and art at work. Both of those are found in the naming of animals. So all aspects of human work, whether it be intellectual, creative, artistic, or physical production in the garden, all of these predate the fall. They're all part of what we as human beings were meant to do. Further, God tells Adam and Eve that they can enjoy the fruits of their labor. They can, in, you know, they're welcome to eat from anything from the garden except the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we are entitled, we, we are made to work, and we are entitled to enjoy the fruits of our work. Work is a positive good in Christianity, unlike in the Roman Empire. Monks were required by the earliest rules, they were requ required to do labor, Two reasons for that. One of them, humility. In a culture that sees labor as demeaning, it was a way of promoting humility. But it is also a way that they are bringing forth a reflection of the image of God. So production is good, labor is good, work is good. This is the origin of the Western concept of a work ethic. It really dates directly to this. Now from there, the next step is if production is good, then if you have surplus production, reinvesting the surplus into additional production is also a good. Therefore, you have the foundations for capitalism, reinvesting profits to increase production. To take it one step further, work may be good, but drudgery, toil, is a result of the fall. The land no longer yields its bounty, but it gives you thorns and thistles. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So drudgery and toil is bad. That is a consequence of the fall. Now, if you can find a way to redeem work, redeem labor, eliminate the toil and drudgery out of work and restore it to its proper dignity, this is part of the restoration of humanity that's to be accomplished in Christ. The net result is that uniquely in the West, technology is harnessed in such a way as to eliminate drudgery and toil from labor, to free people up to use their God-given gifts and abilities in a more creative, satisfying way. So, for example, you have fantastic technologies that have developed in many parts of the world, but only in the West do you find people taking those technologies, let's say a water wheel, and harnessing it to grind grain, to operate the bellows in a smithy, to full cloth, to produce paper. Only in the West do you see that because this kind of repetitive labor, 
toil, drudgery, is seen as a result of the fall, is seen as a curse, and is something that human beings made in the image of God should not have to do anymore. If we can find a way to eliminate it, we should. And so technology is uniquely used in the West to eliminate drudgery and to make work, therefore, not only more productive, but more dignified. And people need to realize, we want to reemphasize again, all of this springs from a very basic concept of your worldview, of, of a very, very basic concept of who you are, how you have been created, where you come from, and what you're here for. Right. In contrast to the Roman Empire, every human being is created in the image of God and is therefore infinitely valuable. It's not that the elites don't have to work. We should free the elites from toil. We'll let the slaves do it. It's well, slavery actually disappears in medieval Europe, but even the peasants should be freed as much as possible from their toil because they are also made in the image of God. This notion of human equality, the notion of the image of God as the source of human worth, is the thing that sets the biblical worldview apart from anything else anywhere in any culture that I'm aware of, and that lays the foundation for what we do in the West, everything that we do in the West. And this biblical worldview is the foundation of what we think of as, as these fundamental human rights, human rights that we, we see enshrined in our founding documents, for instance, here in America. Right. So people are recognized as having a right to life. You know, you can't just, that's why murder is wrong. People have an intrinsic right to life. But at the same time, slavery disappears from medieval Europe. In fact, Thomas Aquinas goes so far as to call slavery a sin. By the time you're in, in uh, the central Middle Ages in Europe, the only slaves that are left are, are some prisoners of war or people who might have been enslaved for crimes. But that's about it. Uh, there's no arbitrary enslavement anymore because people have a right to liberty. People will sometimes say serfs are the same as slaves. They really aren't. They have a lot more freedom than a slave does. And they have protections that slaves don't have. So we have a right to liberty that is also enshrined and discussed by medieval theologians. And when you get particularly to the nominalists, they're going to look at the stories in Genesis. They're going to look at the law code of the Old Testament, which enshrines a right to property. And so you will find the, the nominalists in medieval Europe arguing that property is an inalienable right. It predates the fall because it dates to Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm -hmm. And therefore, governments don't even have jurisdiction over property. It's inalienable. The book is Why You Think the Way You Do. It's published by Zondervan, the author with me today, Dr. Glenn Sunshine. And uh, you can pick this up at your local bookstore. If they don't have it, feel free to go online, check out our bookshop at www.acton.org. Click on the bookshop link. You'll be able to pick up a copy there. Let's look at the contention that you make that there are some, there's some evidence that, that the worldview that brought down the Roman Empire is, is starting to be reflected in the worldview that we see in Western culture today. What are the warning signs that you see? The overall thesis of the book is that Western civilization is a product of Christianity's influence on Roman civilization. Christianity really produces more of the Western worldview, the Western success than anything else, but it's built on a foundation of Rome. As Christianity's influence on the culture is waning, increasingly uh, being marginalized, what we are seeing actually is a return in many ways to the ancient Roman worldview. So, for example, if you think where we started about the hierarchy of being, this connection of all things in, in a great chain from, from God all the way down to dirt, increasingly human beings are being presented as just one aspect of nature and not necessarily any more important than any other. Spain gives great apes human rights. Switzerland gives plants rights uh, in recent uh, laws that have been passed. So the notion that human beings are nothing more than 
creatures embedded in a great, well, we would describe it as a web today, but essentially hierarchy of being, that there's a continuity between the simplest plants or animals through human beings, and it's all just a matter of continuity and that nothing is really intrinsically more important than anything else, is really very similar in many, many ways to the Roman and ancient Greek concept of this hierarchy of being, that everything is interconnected. We're all part of one whole. Uh, we see it in a decline in human rights. Uh, now, that may seem rather odd, but the fact of the matter is that the only foundation for human rights that exists is the Western concept, the biblical concept, that we're made in the image of God. And as you lose that, human rights are increasingly seen as something that's arbitrary. It's hard to argue if you believe in complete cultural relativism that there are universal human rights because no culture will agree 100% with any other culture on what those rights would be. So where do you find them? What are they? And so you get increasingly a deterioration on human rights. It becomes impossible to speak truth about human rights, about morality, about anything like that to any other country. These are pushed aside. Wealth issues, trade issues, economics, uh, political alliances, these things trump the fundamental commitment to human dignity because we don't really have a foundation for it anymore. You see it in, well, as we talked about before, the antenatal attitudes we have, the, the abortion, the open advocacy of infanticide, uh, the, the declining birth rates. These are all reflections of a society that sees personal pleasure, in essence, as a means of salvation, as means of finding meaning in life while rejecting the notion that human life itself, all human life, is valuable. So you can have your fun, but you shouldn't have to live with any consequences of it. This, again, is a reflection of attitudes that you see in Rome, um, and really ultimately connects into uh, a great deal of paganism. Well, we see a lot of uh, a lot of parallels that you just talked about between the declining Roman Empire and uh, our own time. What do we do about it? What's the way to reclaim a, a proper and and even a Christian worldview in a time where where it seems to be just degrading and the foundations seem to be under assault? The key here is to realize that the Roman Empire was really in very very bad shape when Christianity came along and. Christians were a persecuted minority, but by living out a biblical worldview faithfully, by advocating biblical ideas, even in the face of persecution, and by staying faithful, they were able to transform that society. It took hundreds of years, but they were in it for the long haul, and they knew in the end they win. So we need to recover that level of faithfulness. But at the same time, we have to think through what it means to live out a biblical worldview in our society. One example, we talked about uh, ecology, and I would argue that much that is said about ecology today is a mistake. The notion that we as human beings are nothing more than animals, that we're just one aspect of, uh, of nature, that arguing that human beings are distinctive and have special values is speciesist. That entire notion we have to reject as Christians because human beings are made in the image of God. And that gives us a unique dignity and it gives us a unique purpose in the creation that is different from everything else. Among other things, one aspect of what it means to be created in the image of God, looked at from an ancient Near Eastern context, is that in the Near East, someone who was the image of God was God's, that God's regent on the earth, their official representative. And so when it says in scripture that God made human beings in his image, what it means is that we are God's regents on the earth. We are to take dominion, all of those kinds of things. 
as his stewards, not using the word the world for our purposes, not exploiting it for our purposes, but developing it as stewards of God. So what that means is, yes, Christians need to be vitally concerned about ecology. We can't confuse us with animals or with plants. But at the same time, we still need to be vitally concerned about the environment because that is proper stewardship. Uh, in other area, it means we have to focus on human dignity as we develop economically. Technology, science, all of those things developed as a result of the biblical worldview, the, the ideas about what it means to be made in the image of God, and they were harnessed to enhance human well-being and human life. Increasingly, science and technology are seen as being completely autonomous from any kind of ethical or moral or religious questions. From a Christian perspective, that is adamantly wrong. And in our society today, given the level of technology we've got, given where science is going, the first question we need to ask isn't can we do it, but should we do it? It's the question of oughtness. So we as Christians need to speak into science and technology areas. We need to reaffirm the dignity of work and the importance of work. As we're dealing with issues of poverty, we have to recognize that, yes, if someone is starving, we have to feed them. But along with providing them with food, it is also vitally important that we provide them with opportunity so that they get the ability to feed themselves, but more than that, so that they can pay it forward and help others as well. This is straight New Testament teaching but it is also an affirmation of the importance of work and the dignity of the individual. If you remove that from the individual, you destroy their dignity. If you just make them live on the dole, a term from the Roman Empire, if you, make them, if you just have them living on the dole and not doing anything positive or contributing, you kill their soul. And we need to recognize that and reaffirm the dignity of work and reaffirm the importance of that and reaffirm the importance of not simply providing for people physically, but providing opportunities for them so that they can, in turn, help provide for others. We can talk about human rights. It's important that we reaffirm human rights. There is no foundation in biblical Christianity for racism, sexism, ethnocentrism, anything like that. Whenever you put anything ahead of the image of God that all of us share, you are quite literally insulting God to his face. So we need to affirm the equality and the equal dignity of all individuals, and that includes the unborn. We can move into area after area after area. The key thing for this world, I would argue, is recognizing and thinking through the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God, and recognizing that when scripture says that Christ is Lord of all, there is no exception. Every area of our life, all of our recreational activities, our, our jobs, our family life, our social involvements, all of these things need to be lived out under the authority of Christ as his stewards made in his image, bringing kingdom values to bear in every area of life. And if we do that, we have the ability to become the kind of salt and light Jesus tells us we should be. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Uh, Dr. Sunshine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The book is Why You Think the Way You Do, The Story of Western Worldviews from Rome to Home. It's available through Zondervan now at your local bookstore. You can also check out Acton's bookshop, www.acton.org. Click on the bookshop link and you can pick up a copy of the book. If you want to see Dr. Sunshine, he's also one of the experts we interviewed for our uh, most recent documentary, The Birth of Freedom. Excellent film, also available through the Acton Bookstore. Act in Stewardship Curriculum, Dr. Sunshine mentioned 
some of the ways that we need to be good stewards of the world around us, God's creation. The stewardship curriculum will be also published through Zondervan uh, in uh, not too long, so you can pick that up as well, the Effective Stewardship Curriculum. Again, thank you so much for coming today, uh, Dr. Sunshine, and we hope to see you around again. Thank you. Thank you.